Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, if you're looking for advice on leadership, there may be no better person to look to than Robert Gates. Some highlights of his resume, an Eagle Scout later becomes head of the Boy Scouts of America. A CIA recruit in 1966 later becomes director of the CIA. An academic and lecturer becomes president of Texas A&M University. And an Air Force veteran becomes U.S. Secretary of Defense, serving both Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. On the other hand, you may be critical of Gates for his role in the Iran-Contra scandal. An independent investigation concluded that Gates, quote, was close to many figures who played significant roles in the Iran-Contra affair and was in a position to have known of their activities, unquote. Gates has also been criticized for failing to predict the decline of the Soviet Union when he directed the CIA. Listening back to this talk, I was reminded how great it is that we can attend so many talks in Seattle and have the opportunity to ask any question we like of a visiting speaker. Whatever side you take, this talk is informative, and we had our fair chance to put Gates on spot afterwards. Robert Gates worked for eight presidents and says he respected all but one. Hint... Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Oh, and he writes books. His latest is A Passion for Leadership, Lessons on Change and Reform from 50 Years of Public Service. Thanks to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Here, Town Hall Seattle's Ware Harmon introduces Robert Gates. To give you an idea of his legacy, when Robert Gates started with the CIA in 1966, it was in an entry-level position. By the time he left the agency 26 years later, he was its director. Dr. Gates has also served as the Secretary of Defense under both President George W. Bush and President Barack Obama, navigating our country through one of the most difficult times in recent history. He is a past president of Texas A&M University, and he's currently the Chancellor of the College of William & Mary. In making his return to Town Hall, he joins us tonight to discuss his latest book, A Passion for Leadership, Lessons on Change and Reform from 50 Years of Public Service. Please join me in offering up a warm Seattle welcome to Robert Gates. Thank you. Well, thank you for that kind introduction, and thanks to all of you for coming out for this occasion. Uh, It's a pleasure to be back. I was here almost exactly two years ago, happily without a neck brace from a broken neck this time. Uh, When I say it's a pleasure to be here, I really mean that because it wasn't but a few days ago that I was in Washington, D.C., paralyzed with a blizzard just like it was paralyzed before the blizzard. (laughs) It is a unique place, the only place in Washington, uh, the only place that you can find a prominent person walking down Lover's Lane holding his own hand. (laughs) Place where there's so many people lost in thought because it's such unfamiliar territory. Well, we could spend the whole evening discussing political leadership in America across the spectrum, including the presidential campaign. But one thing I think to be said about it all is that candidates like Donald Trump and Senator Sanders have tapped into a very real frustration on the part of many Americans for elected politicians at the national level. 
and the all too often incompetent, arrogant, dysfunctional, and just plain bossy government they lead. The presidential candidates are talking in one way or another about the problems and inadequacies of both government and business. But the candidates are largely focused on primal scream therapy rather than on actual solutions. My new book, A Passion for Leadership, is about how you can actually fix these institutions, how you can change and reform government and other big institutions that govern our day-to-day -day lives and make them work better, be more cost-effective, and more responsive to citizens and customers. Because the truth is, if we don't fix our institutions and do so urgently, it can have catastrophic consequences for our way of life our financial security, our national security, and our freedoms, and at times our very lives. My book and my remarks tonight are about how the lack of courageous, tough-minded leaders underlies the many failures of institutions, both public and private, in recent years, and how good leaders can transform underperforming and broken organizations. Despite the political paralysis in Washington and elsewhere, bureaucracies inexorably intrude ever more pervasively into our lives. They influence our health, our safety, our economic well-being, our children, what we eat, what we drive, and every business, farm, and educational institution in the country. Yet even as bureaucratic tentacles extend into every nook and cranny of America, the litany of their incompetence, corruption, and arrogance grows exponentially. Many of these institutions are now indispensable to us, but their repeated and highly publicized failures have shaken the public's confidence that they, that government in general, and sometimes business, can do anything right. Just a sampling of the lapses and failures in recent years, regardless of who was minding the store in the White House or the Congress, is profoundly disturbing. 9-11 itself, a failure of intelligence and law enforcement of monumental consequence. The failure of virtually all of our financial, regulatory, and administrative bodies to anticipate and prevent the abuses that led to the financial meltdown in 2008 the Federal Emergency Management Agency's handling of the aftermath of Hurricanes Katrina and Sandy and other disasters, the multiple and continuing failures of the Veterans Affairs Department, challenges to the integrity of the Internal Revenue Service, lapses and scandals of the Secret Service, the initial handling of the Ebola crisis by the Centers for Disease Control, the botched rollout of the Obamacare website, the waste of billions of dollars on failed procurements in the Defense Department, contaminated water in Flint, Michigan, and so many more. And then there's the everyday travail of Americans in dealing with impenetrable, impersonal, infinitely complex, obdurate, and often arrogant bureaucracies such as Social Security, Medicare, local, state, and federal taxing agencies, getting a driver's license, getting a permit, a building permit, or permission to remodel your home, dealing with the phone company, your credit card issuer, a billing error by a big chain store, health care insurance, university and public school administrations. 
And it's a rare soul who has not been frustrated and maddened by multiple business bureaucracies, not to mention disastrous business decisions that cost millions of jobs and create economic turmoil and heartache. Hardly a day passes in the life of any American without having to do battle with one or another bureaucracy. But it doesn't need to be this way. I believe institutions, bureaucracies, large and small, can be fixed, changed, made more cost-effective and user-friendly, efficient and responsive, and shaped to meet new problems and challenges. I know this because with the help of some great colleagues, I did it at three very different institutions that I led. The Central Intelligence Agency and a dozen or so other U.S. intelligence organizations, Texas A&M University, now the fifth largest in the country, and the Department of Defense, the largest and most complex organization on the planet. And my colleagues and I at all three places showed that a dysfunctional political environment is not in and of itself an overriding impediment to changing and reforming bureaucracies. After all, there wasn't exactly a lot of reform going on in the federal government before paralysis set in. You may ask how the lessons I learned in those institutions are applicable for leaders in local and state government, other parts of the federal government, education, business, nonprofits, for organizations of every kind. But consider this. In external appearance, people are infinitely diverse. Yet beneath the skin, our anatomy and the way the body works are pretty much the same. So it is with bureaucracies. Each shares a lot of DNA with its kin, even distant cousins. And so despite the vast variety of bureaucracies in both the public and private sectors, their cultures, organizational structures, and both internal and outside influences on their operations and behavior are remarkably similar. And thus the strategies and techniques for changing them, for reforming them, are remarkably similar. In truth, virtually every bureaucracy needs to reform, to modernize, to get rid of paralyzing procedure and procedural and operational barnacles that have accumulated over time, reduce waste, and become more efficient, effective, and user-friendly. Reform is not a luxury, but a necessity. With skilled leadership, things can be made to work so much better. By showing that things can change, can get better, I hope in some small but significant way to convince Americans that the institutions that too often fail us can be reformed and to show that leaders at all levels can make that change come to pass. And so I've written this book, a book about people and how to lead them where they often don't want to go. It is about how a leader can make an institution better, both for those who work there and for those they serve. It is about improving lives. In the limited time I have this evening, I'll skip over the many concrete suggestions and recommendations in the book about establishing goals, having a vision, getting an agenda for reform, developing strategies for implementing that reform, and then how you actually implement it and make it happen. I want to focus instead on two central components of change and reform that I write about. 
the personal characteristics necessary for a leader who would successfully bring change, and the relationship between such a leader and those who work in his or her organization. People, not systems, implement an agenda for change. As the leader pursues, pursues a reform agenda, he or she cannot overlook the fact that the attitudes and the commitments and the commitment of their employees will determine success or failure. A critical component of a strategy for change is winning the support of those in the trenches who deliver the mission of the organization. Recognition of their role and demonstrating respect for them go a long way. Any fool can, and too often does, dictate change from the top. But fundamental to enduring success, in my view, is inclusiveness, getting as many people involved as possible, especially among career professionals. Making the effort to prepare various constituencies for change is a step often omitted by new leaders. Real and symbolic actions and gestures of support toward career employees early on can and does have significant impact in softening resistance to change and persuading people to be receptive to what the leader is trying to do. In implementing change in any bureaucracy, the leader must delegate responsibility to subordinates and empower them to carry out the task. Lasting change depends on those below the leader embracing change and taking ownership, making it their own. The more frequently the leader butts in, implicitly reminding his or her lieutenants that it's his or her change, the less they will believe it is theirs. The leader cannot hold individuals accountable for driving change if he refuses to let go of the steering wheel. The leader must trust his subordinates, replace them if necessary, but he mustn't micromanage them. A leader must provide his or her people with the tools and opportunities for professional success and self-satisfaction. He must empower them and provide them with respect, motivation, job satisfaction, upward mobility, personal dignity, and esteem. And finally, the confidence that as leader, he genuinely cares about them individually as well as collectively. You can be the toughest, most demanding leader on the planet and still treat people with respect and dignity. And now a few words about the critical factor in leading organizational reform, the leader. How does a true leader of reform conduct himself or herself? First, the best leaders have their egos under control. They empower subordinates who are given the lion's share of credit and accolades when success comes. A reform leader's primary goal should be getting the job done, not personal glorification or self-satisfaction. The environment created by the egotist is the antithesis of what is required to lead reform successfully. Second, a leader, whether in the public or private sector, must have integrity. Every leader in public service and business will at some point need to stand apart and alone, to speak truth to power, and to do the right thing. That can be a very lonely place, but it is where leaders who can effectively reform institutions can be found. 
If one is to seek, if one seeks to lead men and women, you must persuade them to follow you. And that means they must trust you. A leader's actions must match his words. Integrity in action brings moral authority. And it is moral authority that moves people to follow someone, even at personal risk or sacrifice. Third, self-discipline is central to the leadership of institutions and reforming them. Being an effective leader, especially a reform leader, requires a lot of self-control. Silence and restraint are essential if undervalued tools of leadership. Temper tantrums, desk pounding, and yelling by a leader are an embarrassment and a waste of time and energy. The daughter of the U.S. Chief of Naval Operations in World War II, Admiral Ernest King, once described him as the most even-tempered man she ever knew. He was always in a rage. (laughs) One of the reasons I believe a leader of an institution and a reformer must exercise great self-discipline is because of subordinates. If the boss can't control himself, that sends a signal to others at lower levels that such behavior is acceptable. And that hardly creates an environment in which inclusive, participatory reform can take place. It sounds old-fashioned, but the leader of an institution needs to be a role model. Fourth, courage is not a word that automatically pops into mind when discussing bureaucracies. But any time a mid-level leader in government or business tells his boss and his colleagues that the old way of doing business is no longer adequate and that change is necessary, it is a courageous act. Even when, a man, when the man or woman in charge takes a stand that most people at least initially oppose, it requires courage. Fifth, another aspect of successfully reforming institutions, public or private, is taking the work seriously, but not yourself. Never underestimate the power of a sense of humor. Dwight D. Eisenhower wrote his son in 1943, and I quote, The one quality that can be developed by studious reflection and practice is the leadership of men. The idea is to get people working together because they instinctively want to do it for you. Essentially, you must be devoted to duty, sincere, fair, and cheerful. Devotion to duty, sincerity, fairness, good cheer. These are not qualities taught in school. Formal education can make someone a good manager, but it cannot make a leader, because leadership is more about the heart than the head. How does any organization teach courage, integrity, a love of people, a sense of humor, the ability to dream of a better future? How can any training program inculcate personal character or honor? Core to leadership is the ability to relate to people, to empathize, understand, inspire, and motivate. If you fundamentally don't like or respect most people, or if you think you're superior to others, chances are you won't be much of a leader, at least in a democracy like ours. 
Just because you're high on the organizational ladder and can tell people what to do doesn't make you a leader, just a boss. I'll conclude with a few words specifically addressed to public service. The columnist Walter Lippmann wrote long ago, those in high places are more than the administrators of government bureaus. They are more than the writers of laws. They are the custodians of a nation's ideals, of the beliefs it cherishes, of its permanent hopes, of the faith which makes a nation out of a mere aggregation of individuals. If you scratch deeply, I believe you will find that most of those in public service, Lippmann's custodians, no matter how outwardly tough or jaded, are in their heart of hearts romantics, idealists, and optimists. They actually believe it is possible to make the lives of their fellow citizens better and the world a safer place. But an important part of what makes America unique is that our nation's ideals and hopes and faith are manifested not just in individuals, but in our institutions. Accordingly, we can only bring our ideals alive, fulfill our hopes, and strengthen our faith as a country by improving the institutions that are the instruments through which we achieve these goals. The question is whether new leaders, new agents of change, are up to the challenge. President Harry Truman once said, every great achievement is the story of a flaming heart. The task of reforming institutions is a difficult one. A leader's heart must be on fire with the belief in what he seeks to do. Changing institutions is a battle and must be undertaken with courage and strength and conviction. The leader must believe in it before he or she can persuade others to believe in it. The leader must be prepared to put his or her job on the line if asking others to risk their careers and reputations to help. President John Adams wrote his son, Public business, my son, must always be done by somebody. It will be done by somebody or another. If wise men decline it, others will not. If honest men refuse it, others will not. My fervent hope is that this book will encourage the wise and honest among us, especially young people, to consider serving our fellow Americans with confidence that public institutions can be reformed and shaped to serve and to succeed. Thank you. So we have the microphones down here. and Yes, sir. Thank you. What are the major factors that contribute to the public's overall lack of confidence and trust in our nation's leadership? Well, I think, I think first of all, it is the perception that, particularly at the federal level, that too many elected officials are focused on their own self-interest and on getting reelected rather than serving uh, the interests of the people they represent. 
This is actually something that I think the founders never anticipated. We've, we've had polarization and, and bitter politics in this country since its founding. But I think that I think the founders thought that people would uh, serve would be would be have a career as lawyers or businessmen or farmers or doctors or whatever, and then as a burden at some point be willing to serve in Congress. I think what they did not anticipate was people spending their whole lives in Congress. They certainly didn't anticipate a situation which, we, as we have seen in recent years, where at least two senators from Indiana and Kansas did not even have a residence in the, house, in the state which they purported to represent in Washington. And so my view is that, that people would like to see their elected representatives more willing to put their careers on the line to do the right thing for the country and the people they serve rather than be willing to basically do anything to get reelected. So I think I think that's the fundamental cause of the of the dissatisfaction with uh, uh, with elected officials particularly in Washington. And then and then I think there's just among, in terms of uh, appointed leaders, there's just a, a disgust, as I suggested at the very beginning of my remarks, um, at, at the fact that uh, incompetence uh, seems to be acceptable. And I, I think one of the, you know, people lose their jobs in Washington all the time because of personal beha- misbehavior, you know, packets of cash in the freezer in the garage and um, various sexual peccadilloes and various other things. But what was really extraordinary and created such a furor when I started to fire people at the Department of Defense was because it was unheard of in Washington for somebody to be fired for not doing their job well enough. And so when I fired the Secretary of the Army in March of 2007 because of the treatment of outpatient wounded warriors at Walter Reed, uh, the city went crazy. They couldn't believe somebody had actually been fired for not doing their job well enough. And he was only the first of a number that I fired for that. But I think all of these things contribute uh, to the lack of confidence uh, in, in the senior leadership, particularly at the federal level. Yes, sir. Uh, I'd like to ask about your current leadership role at the uh, William and Mary. Um, you uh, were preceded as the president uh, was um, Gene Nickel. And Nickel was fired by the university because he insisted upon the removal of a cross from a public space. He was offered money to not reveal that he I, was I can, fired. I can save you some time here. I am yes. not the president of William & Mary, and I am not its day-to-day leader. My role as chancellor is purely ceremonial. So I preside at commencement and charter day, but administrative decisions I have not been involved in, and also that was all before I became chancellor in 2012. Is the cross still there? 
I think that the cross is still there. Yes, sir. Good evening. My question is about leadership. Um, When you work in such a large and hierarchical organization, such as the CIA or the Defense Department, how do you ensure you're getting authentic, real critiques and feedback from those under you when you're considered to be in a position of power? Well, the first thing that I think you have to do, and I write about this in the book, is you have to surround yourself with subordinates that you are confident are independent enough and strong-minded enough that they will tell you exactly what they think. Um, And in fact, I think this is a characteristic of the presidents that I consider our greatest presidents. Um, the, The greatest presidents, I think, were best described by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. in the early 30s when he was asked about FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And he said of Roosevelt, he has a a second-rate intellect, but a first-rate temperament. And what that means to me is, and I think that characterizes our greatest presidents, and what it means is they recognize they're not the smartest man in the room, but they have the confidence, self-confidence, to surround themselves with people who are independent-minded, strong-minded, willingness, and eager to have people around them who will tell them when they think they're wrong. So the first thing in terms of getting accurate information is to, um, is to surround yourself with people who will tell you the truth, regardless of uh, and, and then period. That means you can't be like the founder of, one of the founders of MGM, Samuel Goldwyn, who once told his staff, I want you to tell me exactly what you think, even if it costs you your job. (laughs) Instead, you have to be more like, you want to be surrounded by people like George C. Marshall, who's famously characterized as speaking truth to power. The other thing I think you have to do is to make sure you have multiple sources of information and not rely on just one source. So if somebody would come in my office and tell me something, uh, I almost always would ping one or another additional channels to see if, in fact, what I'd been told was accurate. So I think that I think a, a willingness to... Um, question information and to seek confirmation is, uh, is very important. And I'll give you an example of where this, can, where this plays into, uh, into effect. So we have, a, we have a category of information from uh, the intelligence community of information sent to the president that's called a critic message. And it's the first report of some thing that has gone wrong overseas, whether it's a plane crash or a terrorist attack or whatever. And the one thing, and, and you could tell a new staffer in the White House because they would immediately run to the president and show him one of these critic messages. And what you learn after a little experience is that critic messages are almost always wrong because it's like the first battle report or the first eyewitness account of an accident. And so you hold back until you can get confirmation of the information before you take it to the president. 
Yes, sir. It's a little bit different tack, but could you give me your thoughts on the effect of compensation on leadership? That's not necessarily public service, but the effect of compensation on leadership in our country. Well, I think that um, I, I think you have to divide it into the public and private sector, um, because in the in the public sector, compensation is limited by law. And uh, in a way, I've sort of seen the mix of those because um, one year, uh, my daughter was working for a financial institution here in Seattle. And at the time, as Secretary of Defense, I was supervising three million people. <laughs> and she was supervising three and made more money than I did. <laughs> now, as a father, that's really good news. <laughs> but a little imbalanced. But that, I mean, people who go into public service know that that's the way it's going to be and, and I think um, are prepared to accept that. And an amazing number of people um, have great careers and never make a ton of money. I will tell you, when I retired as CIA director in 1993, our daughter was going to go to college that fall, and had I stayed on as director of central intelligence, I would have been lined up at the credit union with everybody else to borrow the money to send her to college. In the, public se in the private sector, it's an interesting question, and there are lots of things written about this, but the interesting thing is that, that there was a big push years ago to more effectively align compensation with the performance of the company. And so compensation, regular salary, tended to be capped at a relatively reasonable level. But there was tremendous upside through options or uh, various other uh, means to make a great deal of money if the share price rose and all the shareholders benefited. And now some of those options and so on for a number of people in the private sector uh, constitute an enormous source of wealth and, and has contributed to this perception of income inequality that exists around the country. And I'm not sure, I, I mean, I'm, this is not my area of expertise, uh, and I'm not sure I have the right answer, but the interesting thing to me is we, this is, in effect, the situation we have now is the result of a reform to try and limit the salary of, of executives of big companies and tie their compensation more directly to the performance of the company. Now we have, see the negative consequences of that. So figuring out where the right balance there is, uh, is frankly... Uh, the work of people who spend a lot more time and energy on this than I do. Yes, sir. Yeah, I was wondering what your thoughts were on the role of whistleblowers in organizations. Uh, for instance, one of the reasons Edward Snowden gave for leaking the information that he did was that he had predecessors in the NSA who attempted to uh, make reforms or changes in, in activities they thought were illegal, and they suffered a lot of retribution. In fact, one guy had the FBI break into his home and he went through a lot of legal prosecution. So I'm wondering, I guess, first of all, whether you think the whistleblower does have a, um, some sort of purpose in an organization, and if so, whether they should be discouraged or encouraged. 
Well, I think whistleblowers do have a, a role, and, and the reality is, in, in the federal government, <clears throat> there are a number of avenues that a whistleblower can uh, pursue with the information. Uh, one is um, to the organization's inspector general. My experience, both at CIA and at the Defense Department, is the inspector generals are very open to whistleblowers and open to people coming in and reporting. Most of the, most of the investigations that have been opened against three- and four-star generals in the last five or six years are the result by the inspector general of the ser- either the service or the Department of Defense are as the result of a whistleblower, as of a generally speaking, someone of much lower rank reporting what they saw as abuse of privilege, and and those investigations have been opened, and those whistleblowers were effective, and I don't think that they've and their anonymity was protected, and I'm not aware of any of them uh, being penalized. Do you know the case of Thomas Drake at the NSA, who was before Snowden? No. Okay. Well, he he basically he was a. But high but I would but I would say there are other avenues beyond the internal. Okay. So one is the intelligence committees on the Hill. And and a, a professional in the intelligence community knows that he or she can go to one of the intelligence committees on the Hill if they see uh, what they think is an abuse and report that, and their anonymity will be protected. And then there's also the Justice Department, in terms of people going to the Justice Department and saying that there is an abuse. Now, I don't, I don't question that there have been cases in which whistleblowers have been punished, or have been where there has been retribution. And my view, if I were, if one of those cases had come to my attention as Secretary of Defense, I would have retaliated against those who retaliated against the whistleblower. Because that's, I mean, the whole purpose of these channels is to surface information of things not going right. President Obama, when, I, when he first came into office, asked me to speak to the cabinet. And I told, I told these folks, these men and women, and it made the hair on the back of their necks stand up. I said, right now, somebody in your department is breaking the law. And the question is, how fast can you find out about it, and can you find out about it before they do serious harm? The way you find out about it, as often as not, is through a whistleblower. So I I think that they're important. They ought to be protected. If they're wrong, so be it. They still shouldn't be retaliated against if they thought they were doing the right thing. When my two sons were younger, they were involved in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, and I remember going to Scoutorama with a petition asking the Boy Scouts and collecting signatures to rescind their ban on gay participation in that. Uh, And I was yelled at by some and approached kind of threatening by scoutmasters in uniform because that was so threatening to so many of them. How did you get the Boy Scouts to change their mind? Well... Having changed the policy at CIA in 1992 and having led the change in getting rid of don't ask, don't tell in the Defense Department, um, 
Let me just say that for a lot of people, um, a certain deference is paid to somebody who's been the former director of CIA and the Secretary of Defense. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I would say, I would say it was, I, we were successful on because of two things. First of all, it was quite apparent that our legal position, as best I could see it, was unsustainable. Uh, and the intriguing thing was that, first of all, we had, before I became president in 2013, the movement had voted to uh, welcome uh, gay young people, gay boys. And, and then we began in the spring of 2015 a, um, the New York City Council hired an uh, 18-year-old Eagle Scout to be on their camp council staff for the summer, and he was gay. And, and we would have ordinarily taken action uh, to prevent that. But because he was becoming an employee... He fell under the New York state laws with respect to non-discrimination on the basis of orientation for employment. And, and we also faced the probability that such action would be brought against us with respect to employees in about two dozen other states where there was uh, similar uh, anti-discrimination legislation. So we would have found ourselves, so we were, we were in a, and again, this, I'm not a lawyer, but this was my reading of where we were, we faced the prospect of um, litigation in multiple states against quite clear legislation and the likelihood we would lose all of them. So we would be in a position then of accepting gay youth and having to accept gay employees but still having a ban on gay volunteers. And it was at that point that I told the movement, this is unsustainable. <laughs> uh, I think that the other part of it, so there was an element of logic and kind of where we found ourselves. I think the other part of it was, uh, first of all, you need to understand, 70% of all scout units in America uh, are sponsored by churches. So we had to find a way in which churches could feel comfortable that under their First Amendment rights, they could still appoint leaders that, were, that had views and values and behavior consistent with the teachings of that church. So a number of churches welcome gay leaders. Some do not. But they have a First Amendment right to be able to choose their own leaders. And so it is that. So our national policy is we have no discrimination. And so every unit in America that is not sponsored by a church uh, pretty much comes under our policy and has to be willing to accept gay leaders if they, if they qualify and, and the unit wants them. Churches can decide on their own what kind of leaders they want. I think we're okay. And I would tell you that the, we have kept the churches on board. 
And it's a little too early to tell, but in the last three months of last, so this decision came at the end of July, and I would tell you the National Executive Board of the Boy Scouts is uh, about 80 people, and the board voted uh, to adopt the change in this policy with about 80-plus percent of the vote. So it was not a close-run thing. In the last three months of 2015, we may have seen the first turnaround in membership in the Boy Scouts in 30 to 40 years. We are being admitted back in, allowed back into school systems to recruit Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, where we've been excluded for a long time. Um, we have had corporations come back to us in full support. And so my hope is that putting this issue behind us, in effect entering the 21st century, that we actually uh, may have paved the way for a revival and future growth of the Boy Scouts of America, which I think is a good thing for America. Hello. Um, So when I think about the next generation of leaders, I also think about how we very much live in a digital age where it's becoming more and more impossible to live a truly private life. And it seems like there's this balance between participating and staying socially relevant, but then also being cognizant of the fact that everything you do is going to be recorded somewhere. So do you have a perspective on how that is going to change, for instance, in politics, where the tendency is to be a little bit invasive into personal lives, how we choose our leaders, how people choose leadership positions? That's a very good question. Uh, I guess the first observation I would make is that um, in this day and age, if you have any skeletons in your closet, you better not go into public service. Uh, as a number of elected officials have discovered. Um, It's interesting. um, Thomas Jefferson, long before the digital age, wrote that a public servant must consider himself public property. And I think that if you want to, you know, the truth is, Unless you, until you reach fairly senior levels, you can do a pretty good job of maintaining your privacy. It's really up to you how much you want to get on social media, how much you want to communicate, whether it's tweeting or Facebook or things like that. When you get to a senior level, you make choices about those things, and you also have to realize that you are going to be in public scrutiny. And believe me, the the thing that is the the newest and most difficult for a lot of public officials to get used to, as Mitt Romney found out to his chagrin in 2012, is that you can be at a private dinner party and what you say is on YouTube the next day. And so there is no... Outside of the confines of your own home, there is no privacy. And... You know, I think that's not all a bad thing. The notion that what you say in private has to square with what you say in public seems to me pretty sensible. And if you're foolish enough to try and say one thing in private and another thing in public, you probably ought to be caught out. Um, 
So I, you know, I admit, I'm very old-fashioned. I didn't use email as Secretary of Defense. I didn't use email as Director of Central Intelligence. I don't do Facebook. I don't tweet. Um, and, you know, my kids think I'm a troglodyte, but so be it. So you do have some control, but, but it is a fact of life. And, and if you are going to go into politics or you uh, eventually reach a fairly senior position, really it can be local, state, or federal, uh, or in a well-known charity, uh, charitable organization or whatever, you're just going to have to deal with the fact that uh, when you're outside your house, you're always on. And, and um, the good news is, if you're an honest person and you're a person of integrity, where, as I said in my remarks, your words match your actions and your actions match your words, you probably don't have much to worry about. We've got time for one last question. You get it. Last man standing. Thank you. Um, greatly respect your service. I, uh, I'm looking for the Cliff Note version of your first book, actually. Um, uh, one of the few people that I know is universally respected across two very contrasting administrations, let alone six presidents. But I wonder if you could uh, enlighten me and perhaps the audience that didn't hear your speech two years ago so the difference as to how you approached and how you felt you were dealt with between uh, the Bush administration, which was very much aggressive foreign policy, uh, uh, military, and, and the current administration, who is, is much more pullback in terms of uh, use of military force. Um, very difficult questions, two very unique groups of people to deal with, but quite different contrasting philosophies. And I I wonder how your leadership managed to bridge those two cabinets and those two administrations. Thank you. So a question I often get is, how could you work for two possibly, two and such different presidents as George W. Bush and Barack Obama? To which I respond, well, you forget I worked for Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. Um, I also worked for Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. So, I, you know, I, George W. Bush and Barack Obama were respectively the seventh and eighth presidents I've worked for. And, and you adjust. Um, I enjoyed working for both of them. I liked and respected both of them. Um, when I met with... Um, when I got word that president-elect... well. Senator Obama was interested in possibly keeping me on as Secretary of Defense in the summer of 2008. Um, <clears throat> I, and would I have a conversation with him about that? I said no. Um, but closer to the election, I would probably be willing to have that conversation. So I received a call from the senator who was the go-between between the two of us, uh, in October, and I said, yes, I'd have that conversation because then it looked pretty clear that uh, President Obama was, or that Senator Obama was going to win. And I said, how about if I, and then I did something I think unique in American history. Usually when somebody is elected president, 
They send the questionnaires out to prospective cabinet officers, you know, kind of your positions on the issues, this, that, and the other thing. I turned that process on its head. I said, how about if I draft up some questions uh, for, for Senator Obama uh, to guide our conversation? So I ended up preparing 10 questions and sent them through this intermediary to Senator Obama. And I got word back, well, these are good questions. He's, he thinks these are good questions. Do you want the answers in writing? <laughs> I said, no, this isn't a test. It's just it's the basis of a conversation. And the very first question I asked him was, why do you think you can trust me? We'd never worked together. We don't know each other. And, and, he, and so when we had a secret meeting after the election in the firehouse at Reagan Airport, uh, they pulled all the trucks out. It was just the two of us sitting at a little table. He actually pulled the list of questions out of his pocket and opened it up and started going through them. And it was things like, why, do you, why can you trust me? Um, where are you headed on uh, Afghanistan? Because the path forward on Iraq was pretty, pretty much already set. About the defense budget, who's going to be on the team? Because I think that's important. Uh, and so on. So I guess where I'm, where I'm going with this is, as a result of that conversation, I've, I've, first of all, I liked him, and I felt that, um, that I would be comfortable working for him. And I probably, I, I certainly had more arguments with him and more intense arguments than I had with any other president I'd ever worked for. And, and yet... And, and it was almost always in private in the Oval Office. And it was over budgets. It was over the approach on how to get rid of don't ask, don't tell, and a variety of other issues. And it would be very intense. But he never yelled. He never was spiteful. He was never mean. And he never shut me down. I go back to my earlier point about seeking candor and independence. There have been a lot of presidents that I worked for. I wouldn't have been in the Oval Office very much after that. But he always, he always was interested in what I had to say. And at the end of almost every single one of those intense arguments, at the end of the meeting, we would stand up and he would smile and he would say, are you sure I can't get you to stay until the end of the first term? <laughs> um, so I was able to make the transition because I was comfortable with where he was headed uh, on foreign policy. Uh, at least for the first year or two, uh, and initially I was only going to stay a year. I will say we began to part company on issues in the spring of <clears throat> spring of 2011, just a couple, three months before I actually uh, retired as secretary. I opposed the intervention in Libya in the Situation Room. I said, can I just finish the two wars I'm already in before you guys go looking for a third one? Um, I will say in retrospect, I think I got that one right. Um, but, and so I'm not sure that uh, it would have been as congenial going forward after that, but certainly for the first, for the two plus, first two plus years of the administration, uh, we were on the same wavelength, and I thought the policies that he, were, he was pursuing, um, I either didn't have a problem with them or I was supportive. 
and that included the outreach to Iran. I, do, I was pe- totally pessimistic that he was going to get a positive response, but it seemed to me there was no harm in trying, and furthermore, that outreach would then strengthen our position to get the Europeans to join us in tougher sanctions. But we had to try the diplomatic path before we could get them to agree to that. So um, I, I, I will say that with the, with the single exception of Richard Nixon, I respected all of the presidents that I worked for. Um, when I joined the NSC staff in the spring of 1974, four months before Nixon resigned. I've described it to people as signing on as a deckhand on the Titanic after it hit the iceberg. (laughs) Uh, But um, we have a habit in this country of demonizing our presidents. Um, We elect them and greet them for about a nanosecond with great hosannas um, before we then tend to turn on them. And having watched so many of them up close and how hard they wrestled with the challenges facing our country, uh, I probably have more sympathy for all of them than most people who have to rely on the newspapers and news accounts of their behavior and their activities. Thank you all for coming out tonight. That's it for this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Robert Gates' new book is A Passion for Leadership, Lessons on Change and Reform from 50 Years of Public Service. Thanks again to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. ¶¶